you know, seven years in the marriage, I've learned that you can't do that. So you have to feed her. Um, and now we have two kids, you have to feed them too. So I went in the boots to get snacks. And it's full of shelves of, of, of meals for one. These healthy meals for one in the fridge, you can just buy meals for one. Everything's individualistic. It used to be that you'd have generations and generations living in the same house together, working together, communities pulling together. Now, it's not really like that. Everything is about what's best for me, right? Those adverts like, because I'm worth it. Or there's, I saw one recently, it was like a Ford for a, a car, and it's like, oh, you deserve this. What's best for you? Or those funeral plan adverts, you ever seen them? It's all about you know, making sure that you and your wee group are, are catered for. Individualism is the, the, the single greatest driving force of culture, I would say. At least in the West where we live. You do your, your thing, you believe what you believe, uh, and that's good for you. And as long as it doesn't interfere with me and what I do and what I believe, then we'll get on just fine. But this isn't what the Bible teaches, is it? The, the, the kingdom of God isn't like that. The kingdom of God is, uh, is the people of God, the church. We are the people of God. And so if you're a Christian this morning, then you're part of the church. You're part of the body of Christ this is how the Bible refers to us. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, For just as the body, the physical body, is, me, is one, right? My body is one, but it has many members. I have fingers and toes and arms and legs and feet. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. It doesn't make any difference your background. It doesn't make any difference where you're from. It doesn't make any difference your race or how much money you have. We're all one and are all made to drink of one spirit. We are the body of Christ and the body is made up of many different parts. And so when we get together, it's the body of Christ coming together. It's the, the people of God getting together for the very reason we were created. And this is the theme of this psalm. It's the main, th- main thrust of this psalm is the, is the scattered many becoming the gathered one. This is what God is doing in the world. He's gathering people to himself. Listen to ver- look at verses three and four with me. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the, tr- the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks for the name of, to the name of the Lord. I mentioned this symbolism that's part of the poetry of the Psalms. It's beautiful when you start getting into it. And so what he's, he's talking about Jerusalem, he, he, I can imagine him outside the city and he sees the city and he surveys it. And he starts to think, man, this is just like the people of God. What does he say? He says, he said, it's, it, it's built as a city that is bound firmly together. You see, Jerusalem was so important because the temple is there. Because the people of God gather together there. Because this is the place where God lives on earth. Because this is the, the presence of God is there in the temple. It's the focal point. And this is why he's so excited. And he uses this language of, of uh, built as a city that is bound firmly together. There's a sense of oneness and unity. It's interesting that the word uh, bound there, bound firmly together, that, that word sounds very similar in Hebrew. It's related to the same root as the word for companion. Isn't that interesting? He's, you think he's talking about bricks and, well, not bricks and mortar, but probably stones put together. But he's actually talking about companions that are pulled together firmly. See, Jerusalem is a representation of the church. 
Jerusalem is a physical representation of the people of God. So Eugene Peterson, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He, you may have come across like the message version of the Bible. He's the guy who translated that. He's the guy who did that. And he passed away last year. Um, he didn't pass away. That's not true. He went to heaven, right? He's with Jesus right now. And this is what he says when he's talking about this psalm. He says, the city itself was a kind of architectural metaphor for what worship is. Isn't that amazing? All the pieces of masonry fit compactly. All the building stones fit harmoniously. There were no loose stones, no leftover pieces, no awkward gaps in the walls or the towers. It was well built, compactly built, skillfully built at unity within itself. And this is what the worship gathering is. It's the people of God bound firmly together. It's us as companions in Jesus bound firmly together. All with a single pur- purpose of worshiping God. It, the worship gathering is where all the misfits fit together. I love that. Because a lot of us wouldn't, wouldn't hang out together naturally, would we? Right? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to spend time. We, people in society don't spend time with people that aren't like them. That doesn't happen. We don't, we don't do that. But yet in the worship gathering, we're brought together and it doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter what our background is. We come together to worship God and it's this beautiful thing. We're like a city that is built well at unity within itself. It's interesting as well that I'm going to take some water here. Thank you. Here we got that. It's interesting that we see this idea carried through the New Testament as well. Peter, the Apostle Peter, probably know him, friend of Jesus, disciple. Um, he, uh, he writes uh, in this kind of Old Testament language when he's talking about the church. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, if you're taking notes. He says, You yourselves, the church, Christians, like living stones wow, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He used this Old Testament language and he's saying that, that, that we, are like, we are like the city of Jerusalem, we are like the temple being put together to be the dwelling place of God. Now that might be confusing because in the Old Testament, the dwelling place of God, the house of God, God's presence was in one place. It was in the temple in Jerusalem. This is why God says to the people, you have to come to Jerusalem to worship me. You see, in later days, in the time of Jesus, they had synagogues. And these synagogues were, were kind of like mini temples that were all over the place. So you could go, a bit like we church buildings like this, where you could go and, and, and there would be people reading the, the, the Torah and the law and all that kind of stuff and prayers. But back here, it wasn't like that. There was one place where God's presence was, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. But what Peter is saying, for us in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us. So we as individuals are like the stones that make up the temple. We coming together in the worship gathering are the house of God. This building isn't the house of God. But we are together. Wherever the church gathers together is the dwelling place of God. It's the house of God. We are being built up like the temple. So it's really, really significant. I don't know if you ever think of that when you're, you know, your alarm goes off and you're like, oh, I have to get up for church this morning. We should be leaping out of bed because you're a building block in the house of God. Isn't that incredible? And that's why we can be sure that when, when we do get together, God is with us, right? You know, even, uh, I have to confess that even, even some Sunday mornings like, 
you know, it's, it's hard because you're like, are people going to turn up today? Are, uh, you know, what's it going to be like? Uh, are we going to be able to worship God? Is it going to be awkward? Uh, I can get nervous in that. But the truth is that we are being built up like the living stones of the temple. That I'm a building block, that you're a building block, we're all building blocks. We're all stones being built up. All little mini uh, houses of God being built together to make the house of God. This is why we celebrate Advent and Christmas. Because at Christmas we celebrate that God makes his dwelling place among human beings. And this is what David sees when he looks at the temple. Or looks at Jerusalem. He's looking at Jerusalem. He's like, sees all the bricks and all the stones and the towers and the walls and the temple and his palace. And he's like, man, that's just what the people of God are like. All these bricks and the wall fitting together. No gaps. But it's interesting we consider the purpose that they're coming together for. Look at verse 4 again if you have your Bible open. He says, To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. All the tribes coming together. I love that. And notice that the individualism is completely gone now. He doesn't say the tribes of Israel. He doesn't say, well, there's the tribe of Benjamin. There's the tribe of Levi. There's the tribe of Judah. No. He says the tribes of the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter uh, what your education is. It doesn't matter what side of the West Link you grew up on. It doesn't matter what school you went to or what language you speak. That, you, that we are not um, our tribe. I'm not the, I'm not the tribe that, that I grew up in. I'm part of the Lord's people and so are you. We're all God's people gathered together for the single purpose of giving thanks and glorifying God together. And this is what Jesus has come to do. This psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. But yet it points to and represents what Jesus is doing. If we look at the end of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, I hope that, we, I hope that later on in the year or next year we're going to get a chance to do a big series in Revelation because I think it would be really good for us. Um, but in Revelation, we, John, the Apostle John, gets this vision of the future, of the coming kingdom, at the end of all things. And this is one of the things he sees in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. He says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to, the, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what Jesus is doing. He's making a people from all over the world, from every tribe and every nation, so what tribe you originally comes from doesn't matter because now you're in the tribe of God. Now you're part of the people of God. We see this right throughout Scripture, right? One of the, actually, one of the passages that, that we use to, to kind of model how we do church on is, is at the end of Acts chapter 2 with the very first church. And you see them there and they're, they're meeting together in each other's homes. They're sharing meals together. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. They're praying. It's about people from every background being gathered together. Right through the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church. You see uh, Jews and Gentiles. The, the, one of the biggest uh, divides between types of people that has ever existed coming together, being brought together. Right through scripture, this is what God is doing. You see, the worship gathering is about the people of God coming together. It's not individualistic. 
So we don't come to the worship gallery thinking, what am I going to get out of this this morning? Or, oh, I really need this from you, Lord. Or, uh, and it's okay to be needy from the Lord. But when we come to the worship gallery, we're coming and we're realizing that we are the dwelling place of God. That we are coming as a building block in the people of God. And we're coming with the single purpose to give thanks to God. And we're going to get into that in a minute. And this is why the worship gallery is so important. So, the first reason he takes joy in gathering together for worship with the people of God is because there's a community of worship. And the second thing I want us to see is there's also a command of worship, isn't there? Look at verse four. This is what the end of verse four says. As was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. As was decreed, as was commanded. All the people gathering together in one place to worship God because God has commanded them to do it. God has told them to do it. They were commanded to what? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is what we see in Deuteronomy 16, and I mentioned this before. The law says this to the, to the, to the Israelites, not to us. Three times a year, all your meals shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the, fest, the Feast of Booths. Three times a year, come together. There was a definite command to go to worship God in this way. And there was no way that David could have gone, well, I can worship God without going to Jerusalem. That would make no sense because this is also the same David that says, I delight in your law. I, 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 I meditate on your statutes day and night. They, get, they bring me great joy. There was no way he could ever have conceived of, well, I could probably just worship God by lying in bed this morning or I could probably worship God on my own. I don't need church. That was impossible for him. This command to come and worship God. Yeah, there's joy in it for him, but the joy comes in obeying what God has told him to do. And, and, and that's an amazing thing, right? It's a wee side point, right? You can have this for free. Um, God, when God tells us to do stuff, it's for our joy. You might think, oh my God, you're telling me to, do, to, to, to come to, to worship. You're telling me to love my neighbors. You're telling me to love my enemies. You're telling me to give to the poor. You're telling me to do all these things. But he does all those things for our joy. Because he knows if you obey those things, you're entering into the way you were created to be. You're entering into the true life. And this command to give thanks, give thanks to the name of the Lord, he says. And this is like the guiding principle of our worship. It has to be. Regardless of our feelings, regardless of our circumstances. See, when we obey this command and give thanks to God, we see that God is good. Right? Right? We obey this command. Uh, I don't feel like, you know, I don't, I tell you this week, uh, I don't know, I can't remember what night it was, but I, 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 ha I have an infection in my tooth. And uh, I was up all night, like literally all night, sitting on the sofa, wrapping up a blanket, just in pain all night. And I did not feel like giving thanks to God. In fact, I was just like, Lord, please take this away from me, please. I wasn't feeling like, oh, thanks God, this is really good. <laughs> But the command is, we give thanks in all circumstances. And, then we, and when we do that, we see that God is actually good. Augustine, one of the church, he's called one of the church fathers, he says this, a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Isn't that cool? I like, to, I like to think of that. You should be an alleluia from head to foot. Praise the Lord. In all circumstances. That doesn't mean we just, we just don't praise God when things are going our way. We praise God in all circumstances. And I know that's really hard. I know that's really hard. But when we do that, we, we discover and remember the truth that, that God made us. And God loves us. 
and he redeems us and he provides for us and he keeps us. And whatever it is that's hurting you right now, God knows about that and he has you there for a reason. A lot of the time that our objection to, to praising God and especially coming to worship is that we don't feel like it, right? I don't, I'm not in the mood, I'm in no mood to praise God this morning. But not all out with this flipping to a thing. Or, I, you know, I just don't like, I don't like worship music. Or, you know, things are just too hard. I, if I, if it would be dishonest for me to praise God right now because things aren't going my way. But this psalm says, it doesn't matter how you're feeling. This psalm says, it was decreed. It's a command. You've been instructed to give thanks to the name of God. And it's really important that it's a command because if it's a command, it's not dependent on our feelings. Because listen, if we only worship God, if we only praise God and give thanks to God and we felt like it, there'd be precious little worship going on, wouldn't there? Honestly. If we only, if we only gave thanks to God whenever we were feeling like it, we wouldn't give thanks and praise God very often. And this command is repeated to us. We see it in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5. If you're taking notes, it's verses 16 and 18. He says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, One writer that I was reading this week, um, popular writer in America, and he says, he's not Christian, but he says that we live in an age of sensation. We live in the age of sensation. We absolutely do. Everything is about how you feel. Everything is about being true to yourself. It feeds into this individualistic thing. I'm only going to do that if I'm being true to myself. It's almost like the biggest crime we commit these days is not being true to myself. Everything is about how you feel. So if we don't, if we don't feel something, it's not authentic. But, but, but God's word says something different. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, we find that our deepest needs are already met. That we, have, we actually have the power and the strength we need to go through the thing that would make us not want to worship in the first place. And often, and often actually, we find out that the way we were feeling about that or thinking about that was wrong in the first place. One teacher says this, worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. Let me say that again because it's so good. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. We're commanded to give thanks in all circumstances. We give thanks to God through, through praise in our gathered worship. And we do this every Sunday and we're reminded that God is good. It resets our priorities. We're going to see that in a second. That God is always for us. That that God has ultimately provided for us through his death and resurrection. And this is why there's joy in the gathering. Because there's this community of worship and there's this command to worship that's for our good. But then thirdly then, look at verse five. The word of worship. The word of worship. This is where the psalm takes a wee bit of an odd turn for us, isn't it? Because it says this. He's talking about Jerusalem, how good it is, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now, for us, when we hear about the thrones of judgment, we don't think of something good, do we? We're like, judgment, that's really, really bad. Judgment? Are you serious? How can there be joy in that? Judgment has these negative connotations for us, right? Maybe makes us nervous. Jerusalem has this interesting history. 
It's, it, we first hear about Jerusalem in the Bible way back in the time of Abraham um, when this priest called Melchizedek, really interesting character, go and research him in the Bible, and he comes to see Abraham, and he's a priest from Jerusalem. But then we don't really hear about it for a long, long time until the people entered the, the promised land, the, 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 land of, the land of Israel it became known as. And David was the king, and, and he was the one who, who took over um, Jerusalem. He was the one who, under the guidance of God, made it a holy city. He brought the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the, the, the Ten Commandments. And he brought it there. And his job, as the king, was to be God's example to the people. He was to rule over them fairly. He was to know the word of God inside out. And he was to apply it to people's lives. And so he set up these thrones of judgment. That's what it means. These judgment seats, if you like. So if you had a dispute... So if I fall out with Rachel, for example, you know, over whatever, and we can't sort out among ourselves, then we can go to David and say, David, our king, you know, she's being really unfair. What are you going to do about it? And the king would, would impart, use the wisdom of God to impart a decision. And so we see this Solomon, David's son, does this in, in 1 Kings 3. And there's two women that come along, and they both claim to be the mother of one child. And then he applies the wisdom of God to that situation and makes a judgment. See, the, th- the, the thrones of judgment where decisions were made based on the wisdom of God, on the word of God. The law was applied. The scriptures were applied. This word judgment here doesn't mean judgment in the way that we think of it necessarily. It means the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. That's the best way to put this word judgment. He straightens, God straightens things out and puts things right. The judgment thrones are where the word of God is announced. And this is one of the reasons he's so glad about gathering together with, with God's people. Because he needs the word of God to make things right in his life. He needs God's wisdom to, to make these decisions for him. And this is the same for us when we, when we gather. Think about it when we do this, Right? The word is everywhere when we gather together for worship. In the call to worship, we hear God's first word to us. In the benediction, we hear God's last word to us. In the scripture reading, we hear God speaking through our ancestors in the faith. In the sermon, we hear the word of God re-expressed in a way that hopefully makes sense to us, in a way that's applicable to our time and our context. In the worship songs and the hymns, we sing the word of God. Most of these songs we sing are just paraphrases of scripture. And the the word of God informs how we pray together. And this year we're going to start praying together a lot more in our services. Praying together, corporate things of of confession. Stuff like that. We're going to pray together and let scripture inform how we pray together. But the point is this. The point I'm trying to make is that every time we worship, every time we gather together like this for worship, we have our minds informed and our emotions stirred by the judgments of God. Our minds informed and our emotions stirred by the very word of God. What God has decided for you. What God says. This is the way way that he works his salvation out for us. And we see this ultimately. This is why we take communion every week. Because this is the ultimate decision that God has made for you. Yes, you deserve punishment. Yes, you deserve to be without him forever. but, But in my mercy, I've decided to make a way for you to be united with me. And there's no place that this happens better than in the worship gathering. This is why Hebrews, Hebrews says, Hebrews is this book in the Bible that, 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 that references a lot of the Old Testament and makes it relevant for the church. Hiya, sweetie. She's so cute. 
It says, don't neglect the gathering together. Don't neglect it. It's vital for our walk with Jesus. And you might say, well, that's, that's well and good, but I don't need church to read the Bible. That's true. But you need the gathering together to experience the Bible in this way. So somebody said, going to church makes, uh, no more makes you a Christian than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. That's true, but if you want a Big Mac, where are you going to go? You're going to go to McDonald's, right? I almost said Burger King, that'd be weird. If you want a Big Mac, you're going to go to McDonald's. And, and the point is that, that if you want the word of God, you come to get other, to gather like this. There's a big difference between reading the Bible on your own and reading it together and having it explained and taught and experienced it together and saying it together and singing it together and praying it together. If we're only reading the Bible on our own, we're going to miss out on a lot, right? Because on our own, we're more likely to be influenced by culture and by our own thoughts and feelings and, and even our own ignorance. We're all, we're all guilty of this. This is why I spend, not, not, it's just because I have to. I want to be vigilant and faithful to you guys. I spend so much time studying because I, we have to be faithful to what the word is saying because I'm ignorant and my own thoughts and feelings and prejudices get in the way of what God is saying. We should read the Bible every day. I think you should. I know maybe a lot of you will be, have thought about your maybe started new reading plans for the year. If you want any guidance, I've got a good one that I've started and it's really helpful. Um, I, can, I can talk through that. But, but we shouldn't let it replace meeting together to experience God's word together. The language of the Bible is communal. We've already seen that. Even in one tiny section of the Bible today. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Having, having a personal copy of the Bible is relatively new in the history of the church. Only within the last few hundred years. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not like this has been going on forever and ever. And, 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 that, and that gets influenced by this individualism. That we take our copy of the Bible and we hoard it away. And it becomes my quiet time with God. And don't, don't let anyone take those times away from you. But let's not neglect meeting together. We need the word of God. We need the gathering. We need each other. We need the misfits. We need to pray together. We need to hear the preacher who's been struggling over the last six days with, with doubt and fear and tooth pain or whatever it is and blessing and hope and joy and everything in between. We need that. We need each other. This is the way the Bible was given to us and this is the way we should receive it. So the community of worship, he's joy, joyful in the community of worship. He's joyful in the command of worship. He's joyful in the word of worship. And then finally, he's joyful in the unity of worship. And we see this in the last section, verses 6 to 9, where he kind of just bursts into prayer. Love this. So think about this. Even if you're the most faithful churchgoer, even if you go every week, and we do missional communities and meet throughout the week, as Chad mentioned. Even you do those things, right? right even those gathered times of worship are going to be a, a very small percentage of your time, right? Maybe what? Two, four hours at the most out of a week? I don't know how many hours in a week. I haven't done the maths. But it's a very small percentage. So the question we ask is, what difference does it make? If it's like, if, 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 if your time together is a very small percentage, does it make any difference to the rest of your life, to the rest of the week? 
These times when the Israelites came together three times a year, did they make any difference to, to the rest of the year? Listen, let me read verses six to nine again. This is what David says. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. Now, some teachers will interpret this section and say, uh, this, uh, this, this section is about looking outside of the church. It's about seeking the welfare of the city and so on. And it's right, the Bible does teach that and we should, but I don't think that's what he's teaching here. I'm not convinced by that because I'll tell you why. He says in these short verses, he says within three times, peace be within your walls, security within your towers, uh, your towers. Peace, be within you, peace be within you. So if Jerusalem is a representation of the church and he's talking about Jerusalem here and he's saying peace be within you, security be within you, peace be within you, then I think it's fair to say that he's taught what he's praying for is to do with within the church. Anticipates the gathering together with the people of God for the single purpose of giving thanks to God and praising God, and he's praying for unity within the people of God. So this section is about unity in the church. And the first thing he said is pray. He says, pray, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And this wee word, pray, right? Um, he's actually doing something really interesting. He's, translate, he's transitioning from the gathering together to worship to the rest of his life. So he's like, he's transitioning from the worship gathering to the rest of the week. Because the word he uses here, it shouldn't be there. This isn't the word that you would use in a formal setting. This isn't the word of praying in the formal worship gathering, right? This is the normal everyday Hebrew word for ask. Just literally means ask. So it's not, oh dear Lord, we beseech thee. It's like, please Lord, can you give me? Please Lord. It's the word that you would use at the table if, if you wanted seconds or to pass the bread. Can you please pass me the bread? It's that that he's saying. It's the everyday word for use. This praying that David's talking about he, he is an informal asking as we go about our daily business. You see, it's interesting for David that his thoughts and prayers during the time he's not gathered together with the people of God are about the people of God. Isn't that lovely? He loves them. He cares for them. He's thinking about them. He's asking, he's asking God for them. It's all unity and peace and security. If we look at these verses, he's praying, uh, peace of Jerusalem, may they be secure. Peace, security within your towers. Peace be within you. This theme of peace and security. Now we looked at, we looked at the word peace in our Advent series, didn't we? We saw this word shalom. Well, the, the, the Hebrew word for, for uh, security is uh, shalva. And, they, and I'm not going to bore you much, but I just find this stuff interesting, so you have to put up with me. Um, they actually make up the name of Jerusalem. The name of Jerusalem is peace and security. It's Yerushalayim. That's what it means. These two words smashed together. Jerusalem represents the church and it is to be a place of peace and security. Isn't that lovely? You're thinking, you're all coming in here and you're thinking, man, this psalm is all just about him loving Jerusalem. But then you're like, wow, there's so much going on here. This is what I was like when I started studying this thing. So peace, shalom, we looked at this in Advent. It means, it means wholeness and unity, completeness. We already saw that in verse three. It was built as a city that is bound firmly together, no missing parts. 
And we saw that the word bound means companions. And here he is in verse 8, praying for his companions. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. And security. That's not like our word for security. It's not to do with being safe. It's not to do with financial security. It actually means prosperity. But prosperity in a biblical sense, not prosperity like we think of having a good job and having money in the bank. That's what we tend to think of as prosperity, isn't it? Doing well. But what this means, it means that deep sense of security we have as the people of God because we know that God is for us and he's over us and he's with us in Jesus. This is the security that he prays for. He prays, be complete in God. Be whole in each other with God. And have that deep sense of security that comes from knowing God. This is his desire for the church. And his final thought in in, in this psalm is, I will seek your good. How many of us seek the good of each other? Is this what drives our thoughts when we're not together? Seeking each other's good? Because according to this, it should be. David's committed to serving the people of God and seeking their good. Praying for them. This attitude that we should have as Christians, as these living stones built up to make the dwelling place of God, we should care for one another and be for one another and pray for one another and seek peace and security, prosperity. We should seek the good of the church. And this is how worship begins to shape our everyday lives. Now, I want us to be an outward-focused church 100%, without a shadow of doubt, because God in himself is outwardly focused and and he came to us and he pursued us. And I want us to be that kind of church. But there's clear biblical instruction that the church should be for one another. What does Jesus say? The world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. I wonder, like, if people see us as a new church, they go, wow, those guys really love each other. They really care for each other. I want in in that. Whatever, they, whatever they've got, I want some of that. And as we gather together for worship, we remember these things and, and our priorities are changed, right? It shapes our everyday lives. So we move away from individualism. Our self-centered priorities are, are reversed and we become other-centered. Suddenly, your, your needs are more important than my needs. And we don't just love the people that are like us, We gather as this bunch of misfits from all kinds of tribes and backgrounds and we seek each other's good. We serve each other. You see, the worship gathering trains us to do these things not just on a Sunday morning but throughout the whole week. I want to finish with this thought. I know I've gone on for ages. Sorry about that. Not sorry. David has this genuine love for the people of God. And we should have a genuine love for the church. And I want to address a particular thought that some of us have. And, and, and also maybe you have friends who think this way. And I know, it's, I know it's a recurring important thing. So I want you to be able to answer these questions when they come up. I know a lot of people who will say stuff like, I have no problem with Jesus, but it's just the church I have issues with. Or I love Jesus and I don't love the church. A lot of us, maybe you think that way. Maybe you have friends who think that way. But it doesn't make sense in the Bible. Do you know what the church is called in the Bible? We're called the bride of Christ. 
Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about marriage and this is what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And later on he says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We are the bride of Christ. And listen to what Jesus is doing for us. Loving us, giving himself up for us, cleansing us through his word so he can sanctify us, that is make him more holy and make us more like him so that we can be clean and spotless, hard to say, without any blemish. This is what Jesus is doing for us. This is how Jesus loves the church. So if Jesus loves the church this way and we say that we love Jesus, then we should love the church this way too. You can't say you love Jesus and not love the church. I'm not saying the church is perfect because the church is imperfect because it's made up of imperfect building blocks. But imagine, imagine you got a friend and he gets engaged. And, uh, you say to him, mate, I really like you. I think you're a cracker, but I cannot stand to be around your fiance. Can you imagine the damage that would cause to even your, your friendship? Can you imagine the hurt and pain that would cause to the both of them? My, uh, my guess is that it would take you a while to get over that. The truth is you can't love Christ and not love the church. David would think it would be absurd to, to say, I love God, but I, don't, I, don't, I just don't want to get together with his people. We should be like David in this psalm. We should love the church. We should be praying for the church. We should be giving ourselves up for God's people all the time, every day. This is how God loves his people. And this is, this is what we celebrate every week when we take this meal together, right? The bread and the wine. Jesus gave us this meal to remember for us to remember that he gave himself up for us. That his body was broken. That's what the bread represents. His body was broken. Because he gave himself up for us. His blood was spilled that the wine represents. Because he gave himself up for us. Physically, spiritually, every way. Separated from the Father. And this is how we should love the church. So when we come together, this word communion. We come together. We remember what Jesus has done for us. He gave himself up for us. And we're going to share this meal together now. I'm going to get uh, the guys back up to lead us in worship as we do that. But as we come to the table together, and I'll explain that a little bit in a second, but as we come to the the table together this morning, do come together. Don't come on your own. Even if you're a visitor, uh, if, if, if you see a visitor, grab the visitor and bring them to the table. Remember that, there's, that we are a community of worship. The worship is for community. That we are the people of God. Remember there's a command of worship that we obey God's command and there's great joy that comes in that. And remember the word of worship that he's speaking to us and he guides us. And remember this unity of worship. That we come from every background. That we're united in Christ. That he gave himself up for us so that we could be part of this amazing thing called the kingdom of God, called the bride of Christ, called the church called the New Jerusalem. So let, let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the table and take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, Father, I want to thank you that you love us, that you've seen fit to bring us into a family where maybe our own families, our natural families are insufficient. You've seen to bring a bunch of misfits together, and that's what your church is. 
Father, thank you that we are built up together, bound firmly together like the stones that make up Jerusalem. It's this beautiful thing, Lord. Lord, help us to see the beauty of it. Help us to see what you've done uh, to create this. You gave yourself up for us. Help us to love each other well. Help us to, to give ourselves up for your church. Help us, Lord, to not neglect the meeting together. Help us, Lord, to remember on Sunday morning that when we get together, it's not just like a club. It's actually uh, the house of God being built up together for the single purpose of remembering what you've done for us and giving thanks to the name of the Lord. Help us, Lord, as we sing these next songs and take this meal together to give thanks to you, regardless of the circumstances. Lord, it's, it's an old thing, but if we count our blessings, we'll just remember how much you've done for us. No more than, than give yourself up for us. Die on a cross for us. Jesus, help us remember you this morning for your glory and for your name.